The Secrets of Star Trek is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to The Secrets of Star Trek, where we discuss the hidden layers and deeper meanings found in all the Star Trek TV series, movies, and more. And today we're discussing this latest Strange New Worlds episode, Ad Astra Per Aspera. I'm Don Bettinelli, and joining me today on the panel are Jimmy Aiken. Hey, Jimmy. Salve, Domenico. <laughs> and Father Cory Stika. Hey, Father Cory. Howdy, y'all. Uh, folks be sure to stick around to the end of the episode we have some great listener feedback that we want to share with you and we also want to encourage you to share the podcast with your friends help us grow this community of trek fans and reach even more listeners Uh, the show improves the more of you that listen to it it's a proven scientific fact i want to tell you about another show on the starquest network you are sure to enjoy called the secrets of middle earth you can find that wherever fine podcasts are found or at sqpn.com slash Middle Earth. So, uh, Jimmy, can you give us a recap of what happens? Well, I was going to start saying it in Latin, but I wouldn't keep it up that far at mental <laughs> speed. So this week we deal with the fallout of number one's arrest as an Illyrian who is genetically modified and lied on her Starfleet application about her genetic status. Captain Pike goes to a planet to convince an Illyrian lawyer who is a former friend of number one to defend her. It's a hard sell, but he does convince her. Afterwards, the lawyer and number one reject the plea deal she's been offered, so number one will now get a trial, but she's also now facing 20 years in a Federation labor colony. We we then get a tense courtroom drama. The lawyer doesn't like Starfleet and at first tries to put Starfleet on trial. There is also a question of who turned number one in to Starfleet, and if this evidence was illegally gathered, it could get number one off under the Fruit of the Poison Tree doctrine. La'an wants to help number one, and she fears that she made a log entry that someone found who then turned number one in. But this turns out not to be the case. The lawyer puts number one on the stand, and she tells a powerful emotional story about prejudice and persecution against her and her family due to their genetic customs. The Illyrian lawyer then gets number one to admit that it was she herself who turned herself in, kind of like a Zygon wanting to show its true self. Uh, A Vulcan prosecutor dismisses all of this as emotional twaddle and insists on knowing when Captain Pike learned of number one's genetic status. She admits that he learned about it four months ago, and the Vulcan prosecutor demands that she be convicted and insinuates that Captain Pike needs to be tried for conspiracy. But the Illyrian lawyer quotes a Federation law that says a person who is being persecuted may apply for asylum in Starfleet not in the Federation, Mm -hmm. and it's the captain's discretion whether the person gets it. The lawyer argues that number one was being persecuted, that she sought asylum in Starfleet, and that Captain Pike used his his discretion to grant it. Therefore, she should be declared innocent. The court agrees, and number one is restored to the Enterprise crew. The end. So, uh, a lot to say here, but um, let's start with our overall impression of the episode, Father Corey. (sighs) another trial episode yeah i don't like trial episodes they're never handled well on especially science fiction or very very rarely have i seen anything they 
I, I guess I kind of see trial episodes as one of two things. They're either pointless or they're pushing a narrative. Um, the Menagerie is, you know, the TOS episode of Menagerie was, well, the pointless level. It only existed so that they could reuse the cage footage. It was pointless otherwise to the plot. This is more pushing a narrative. This is pushing a, 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 a position they wanted to put out there, but do it in a way that fits within the Star Trek universe. So I, you know, I will say it's a good run for Strange New Worlds. 12 episodes in with two seasons. And this is the first episode I probably won't watch ever again. Okay. Okay. How about you, Jimmy? I'm, I don't dislike uh, courtroom episodes uh, in principle. In fact, I'm aware of a very good courtroom drama in science fiction. It's in the novel Fuzzy Nation by John Scalza, uh, Scalzi. Um, it, is, it has a really awesome trial sequence. Um, but uh, I agree that a lot of Star Trek trial episodes are not that great. Um, you know, I can think of multiple ones that I've been underwhelmed by. Probably, to my mind, one of the worst is The Measure of a Man, which mm -hmm. is the data courtroom trial from early next gen. And um, but there are a bunch in T there are several in TOS that have courtroom sequences in them. There are some in Deep Space Nine and they're generally not my favorite. I thought that this among the trial episodes, I thought this was the best they've done. Um, the the unlike some others, they genuinely explore different points of view that have degrees of legitimacy to them. It's not a, this is all clearly persecute legal, you know, persecution. This is, these are not all clearly bad people. Um, and there's a human dimension to it in that you have like Robert April, who's trying to, to help number one, but also feels like he wouldn't have sponsored her application if he knew her genetic status and not for the reasons that are proposed. Um, and and so he comes across as a complex and sympathetic character who kind of gets knocked around by both sides of the of the legal system here. Mm -hmm. And so I like that. That's more subtle than normal. Also, uh, lawyers in these situations can have their own agendas get mixed up mm -hmm. with defending their client. And that starts happening here. The Illyrian mm -hmm. lawyer wants to make this big statement against this Federation and put it on trial. And that's not directly helping her client. In fact, it starts to harm her client. And so, and then I like the fact she kicks the stuffing out of the Federation by pointing out their own inconsistencies in how they enforce their policies. And so there's a lot of interesting stuff going on. I like that they brought in Fruit of the Poison Tree. Not, not many people know about that, but it basically, if even if you get evidence that points to someone's guilt, if you only acquired that evidence because you did something illegal, you don't get to use that evidence. And so um, and so this is known as the as in legal terms as fruit of the poison tree. If the initial evidence is illegally gathered, then any evidence that follows from that, any fruit that follows from the initial illegal discovery of evidence is similarly tainted as illegal and therefore you don't get to use it. And that's a real legal doctrine that exists in the real world. You know, when uh, Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber, 
who just died, was first captured, there was a question about, wait a minute, is he going to be able to get off scot-free because of Fruit of the Poison Tree? Mm -hmm. And um, so I liked seeing that explored. I liked that um, that the resolution hinges on a legal point that, okay, technically, even if this isn't what the law was meant for, Number one, applied for asylum and Captain Pike granted it to her. Mm -hmm. And therefore, she is legitimately in Starfleet. Now, that's a stupid law. You don't say asylum seekers get to take refuge by becoming members of your military. Um, but, but still I liked that it was, I liked that it was a legal resolution that hinged not on how we feel about Mr. Data and whether or not he's really sentient, <laughs> but, um, but on an actual point of law. So I liked that. That was nice. I, I w- I will point out, though, just briefly, mm-hmm. um, in the military, there is a way for those who are non-citizens to become citizens through military service. Right. Yes. So that's yeah. similar, but not exact. But I not mean, by it's, becoming it's, asylum seekers first in, right, in the military. Right. Yeah. I, no, they're, like they're on green card or something like that. Yeah. I think I kind of fall between both of you. I mean, I, 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 there's stuff about this episode I liked. It was not my favorite um, of, of them all. Uh, there was some big well, holes. I didn't say that either. Yeah. But, yeah no, 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 no. I know. I, I, I but uh, I, I didn't mean, mean to imply that. Um, but um, there are some big holes dramatically i think uh in, in some of the things which we can get to um the, the the whole um fruit of the poison apple there was an inconsistency where uh nira her the the lawyer was actually um not nira uh was but laan was going to use illegally obtained materials to <laughs> to try to <laughs> to counter and i'm like what like no that's also for the poison apple uh but, so but poison her calls are on it which was great yeah, yeah. the poison tree not apple I'm sorry yes the apple is a... mm-hmm. <laughs> um so yeah i felt like the while it did resolve on a legal point i felt like it was kind of legal gibberish like a lot of that and the fact is, is if this were real life Una would be found not guilty and then shipped off to some, you know, no, no, no name duty, duty (laughs) station. And, you know, and she wouldn't remain first officer of the flagship. You know, that wouldn't happen. But, you know, we have to have our, 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 our stars. And that's kind of actually the big problem. And I think something maybe Father Corey alluding to is there's no dramatic tension for me because, we we all know that Una is going to get off because she's the star of the show. Like she's, she's got mm-hmm. to remain on the ship. Um, I think someone on our discord pointed out if this was at the end of the series, since we don't know what Una's fate is right. post strange new worlds before the original series, you know, there could have been some drama, but does she end up, is that her fate? Does she end up in prison? You know, that, that might've worked then, but now it's, it, it, it lost some drama for me. I I I know people complain about, you know, plot armor that um main characters get, but I and and there's an element of legitimacy to it, but most TV and most Star Trek is relatively safe viewing. You're not expecting to see main characters killed. It can be interesting or otherwise dealt with, you know, in a a shuffled off screen. Now, sometimes it happens and it's surprising when it does. But most of the time, the main characters have plot armor and we still find the stories worth watching anyway. So I wouldn't ding this 
because I know that Una's going to get off. It's kind of like in a detective show, you know, you know, there are two kinds of detective shows, whodunits, where you don't know who the murderer is until it's revealed at the end, and how catch-ems. Mm-hmm. And Columbo is the classic example of a how catch him. We see the murder committed on screen at the beginning of the episode. We, the audience, are in no doubt about who done it. The question right. is, how is Columbo going to catch them? And that's what drives the interest and makes Columbo a great detective show. In the same way, you know, so um, courtroom dramas are the flip side of detective shows. And for me, it's like, OK, I know they're going to get Una out of this. My question is. How are they inner? It, 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 it's the how acquit them, mm-hmm. you know, uh, how 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 are they going to get us there? And is it in a satisfying way? And I thought it was a, a largely satisfying way. I like the fact that you've got Laon as this headstrong cop who is trying to get the data, she the evidence that she believes will help her friend. And she's willing to cut corners to do it, mm-hmm. you know, and I like the fact that Uhura stands up to her and says, no, yeah. I can't do that without an order from Starfleet itself. And you don't got that. No search warrant, no private logs. Yeah. And and so I like that exchange. They're both being true to who they are as characters. And and it it's it, to me, it was a great sequence. I also thought and this gets into. You know, Father Corey alluded to kind of the messaging in this. Oh, wait, one more thing before I get to the messaging. Um, the um, This had to be written, this episode had to be written within very severe constraints because we know they're not going to overturn the no genetic augmentation Mm -hmm. in Starfleet policy, because that's still in place in the era of Deep Space Nine. And they have to do a special workaround for Dr. Bashir when his genetic status is revealed. So we know they can't just overturn this regulation. And that means they've got to find a way of getting Una off within those constraints, which makes it a more difficult writing challenge and makes it more interesting. Um, because otherwise we could just have an appeal to conscience and they could say, you're right, this law is stupid. Let's let's gut it effectively legally. Um, when it comes to the messaging. So, you know, there's you can read the messaging multiple ways uh, these days. The LGBTQ stuff is unavoidable on um on television. Everything. I mean, it, it's it's in literally everything, yeah. even though despite the fact that LGBTQ people are not a very high percentage of the population. But given that, it's there's also African American history mixed mm-hmm. up here. Uh and I thought it was nice to have an African American playing the defense attorney. Um, because it helped bring that and, you know, bring that aspect of the American experience into it. Um, also, they didn't just they they didn't just um, limit it to African-American or slavery issues and gay issues. They brought in religious ones as well. They talked about how people were 
persecuted, not not for who they worshipped or how they worshipped or who they loved or things like that. And it's like, okay, if you're going to bring the gay stuff into it, at least put it on an equal playing field and, you know, treat religion as another thing that deserves consideration here, because there have been lots of religious persecutions, including in American history. There were signs out that said no Catholics allowed, you know, Mm -hmm. in various places. And um, so and there's religious persecution going on now where Christians, broadly speaking, Catholic and not, are the brunt of some of religious persecution today. So at least they were playing fair with the different groups and with history. Mm. Also, something I found really fascinating in this is the um, Nira Katul, the attorney who's Illyrian, um, she at one point, and I forget exactly the language she she used to do this, but she brings up Illyrian self-loathing. Um, mm-hmm. That you know we're 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 not like other people in this society. We're second-class citizens, and we end up loathing ourselves. And um, and I recently read an a biography of Malcolm X, where he one of the things Malcolm X brought up i mean he had as as a child he had seen lynchings and stuff you know where uh, an african american would be hanging from a tree mutilated mm-hmm. and he would see this kind of thing and um and when he became a a civil rights activist he would he would talk to african americans and say you don't need to loathe yourself. You don't need to care about the shape of your nose or the color of your skin or the texture of your hair. All of that self-loathing was something you absorbed because the white devils um, have this culture where you're treated as a second-class citizen and you associate the things that are distinctive about you with what they loathe about you, and it results in a form of self-loathing. But you don't need to do that. We're, you, we're all God's creatures, and we should all be proud of who we are, and we should be proud of our distinctiveness and so forth. Now, he, Malcolm X himself, at least in the early phase of his civil rights career, was himself uh, bigoted. He thought all white people were blue-eyed devils. He later had an epiphany on this um, and became much more open to people of other races. Um, but, uh, but I found it very psychologically insightful, this link between you know, persecution and self-loathing that he talked about. And it's it's reflected to a degree on a much lesser degree in this episode, since we, we don't have any Illyrians who've literally been strung up. But they do have persecution that can lead to some self-loathing. And it really resonated for me what the what the lawyer was saying in those regards. Another historical allusion in the persecution of the Illyrians, I think, was to the Jews under Nazi rule yes. as well. Mm-hmm. You know, the oh, absolutely. Una story of the. Essentially, the Illyrians being separated into a ghetto and mm-hmm. having to mm-hmm. you know, be in hiding and fearful for themselves. And, you know, they are people who can hide and fit in many of them because they end up by just basic appearance. They may look the same as everyone else, but then or they can make themselves look the same. Right. And then in the and then but then it can be revealed. And that is an experience that Jews had under the under the Nazis and the Soviets, to be clear, uh, mm-hmm. as well. Um, and that's that's I, I I found that an interesting connection as well. And one thing I just want to kind of go back to very briefly is talking about, you know, when I said it was the episodes are pointless. 
it's not that you know we don't know that the the, the this lead character or this important star is going to get off. It's it's a filler episode. It we it does nothing really to advance the plot of the series, you know. And so that that's what I meant by mm. by you know because we're talking about plot armor and all that. And they, yeah, that's 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 a necessary evil when it comes to something like a Star Trek is you have to have characters that have plot armor to some extent or another. Yeah, I don't I don't know that I'd agree that it does nothing to it. I mean, there's no series arc to the whole thing, but there are sub arcs. And this is the payoff to an arc that they've been working for some time with with Una's character. And I, again, that's I didn't say that this episode also was mm-hmm. pointless. Yeah. I, okay. I, I was talking about like the menagerie as being a pointless yeah. episode because it was yeah. just a filler episode to right. reuse footage they already filmed. You yeah. know, so this one has it is more about a, a narrative mm-hmm. is, is spreading a narrative. Speaking of um, arcs, the, some a listener on Discord brought up an interesting point, which I'm going to bring up here instead of in feedback because I, I think it's a good part of our discussion. Because she, Catherine on Discord, calls back to the finale of season one, where Pike traveled forward in time and saw the future and learned that Una mm-hmm. is in prison. And in she says at the end of the episode, he accepts his own fate, the the one where he ends up in the chair, but decides he's going to try to save Una. So in this episode. What did Pike do differently? I don't remember any signals in this episode that Pike was trying harder to save Una than he normally would have. Maybe we're supposed to assume that Pike might not have gone to the trouble of tracking down Nira. Uh, am I missing something? So what do you guys think? I, I don't remember the it's been too long for me. I don't remember the details well enough right. to be able to comment. OK, I, I I don't think they really did much more than just say that she was in jail. They really didn't show yeah. it. They You know, if I as I recall correctly, yeah, I'm, I'm with Jimmy. I haven't seen it now. What I would. That doesn't leave, however, that she couldn't end up in jail another way at some t- point in the future. True, true. That's true. That this just doesn't happen to be the one incident, which would be kind of interesting, actually, then if it works out where he could be going from this point on thinking, OK, I've changed the future. She's not going to jail for this. But, maybe, but then there's something happens in the future where she does end up in jail, mm. maybe even for something unrelated. Yeah, yeah. And maybe him going to get Nira from that Illyrian planet is, you know, and leaving the Enterprise for days at a time so that Spock could steal it <laughs> is, yeah. is, is that uh, that extra mile that he went. Um, you know, it's it's interesting that opening scene of uh, when uh, Una was a girl and had broken her leg and this this the parents, this struggle you could see in their face. What's going on in their minds, like keeping your child from receiving medical treatment because someone might find out. And that's that's scary. You know, that, that's mm-hmm. like a, a, as a parent, I'm like, wow, that could be. I mean, in some ways that happens even now is people are sometimes afraid to bring their child for medical treatment because they're afraid of the system. They've heard horror right. stories, you know, of children being of the taken system away. or their or their status in our in our country and other countries right. where they're afraid that they'll get reported to the officials right if they're here like that illegally and not citizens yeah that would be an aspect of it so um i thought that was interesting it, here's a big question i wanted to kind of address is is this law just or logical the law against genetic modifications I feel like it's so, a dumb law. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. So I under I, I think there can be multiple reasonable perspectives on this. Um, I don't think that genetic modification is completely ruled out. 
in the Federation. My memory from Deep Space Nine is that there's a line about except for strictly therapeutic purposes, mm-hmm. you know, so someone has a disease, you can use the genetic therapy to cure them. You don't have to stay with diabetes or type one diabetes or something. Um, it's augmentation. That's the problem. Right. And augmentation is something the Federation had a very bad experience with. And so it could be natural to uh, make augmentation illegal. The way I would cut the um, pie is a little different, though. Um, I would say uh, it's genetic modification is illegal and you can send the parents who do it to prison they can they're the ones who made the decision they're the ones who should bear the punishment but unless the genetic modifications a child has received um would make that child a danger i would not punish the child in any way i wouldn't say the child can't enter starfleet um i would say we don't want modifications done but punish the people who chose the modifications if your parents chose it for you your parents get punished if you chose it as an adult you get punished, but it should be the person who made the choice to do the augmentation that gets the punishment, not someone who it was done to that did not have a say in it. I suppose in this case, the 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 crime is not so much that she's augmented, but that she lied about being augmented. That's what they're right. really. Um, because they wouldn't have accepted her if they knew she was augmented. Right, right. But in general, I agree like that it should be the, the parents, who, not the child who had no choice in the matter, who would be. Um, you know, it's interesting to me also that Starfleet is really trying hard to sweep this under the rug, you know, mm-hmm. the, the, because yep. they don't want people to know, you know, that that this person got that as high as she did in Starfleet. Well, you know, yeah, I mean, knows. it sets a bad precedent. Two hundred years from now, you might have a doctor sneaking in or something. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's well, actually was my last thing I thought as I watched this episode is. How does the the precedent of this final ruling affect Julian Bashir, you know, 100 some odd years in the future? You know, what would what well, changes it, for him? It, it did create a precedent for having a genetically modified person serving in Starfleet. So um, and and so that may have played a background in, OK, we can cut a deal here, but your father's going to jail for two years, which is the maximum sentence the Federation ever seems to administer in mm-hmm. the 24th century. Yeah. Um, by the way, um, one thing I liked about this that it, that's in um, the lawyer's speech early on is she um, she starts talking about how uh, the Federation's experience with um, the eugenics wars involved uh, nothing short of playing God. Mm -hmm. So we have an explicit name check of God in the episode, which is rare for Star Trek. And she she then says we may endanger the essence of natural selection by removing outliers. Which is also true. Yeah. And um, if if you're if you're doing artificial genetic engineering, you are sub, you are circumventing natural evolution. And so and and that, as C.S. Lewis pointed out in his book, The Abolition of Man, can have unintended, not so good consequences. I mean, is is this idea that you know, pl- doing messing with natural evolution is playing God? Is it is that scientifically supportable? I mean, because we 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 every time we 
heal somebody's, you know, uh, gen- mm-hmm. you know, I mean, especially in the in the fictional medicine of Starfleet of, of Star Trek, mm-hmm. you know, every time they heal a congenital defect, is that playing? Isn't that playing God with natural selection or frankly, just healing anybody who's got a disease? I mean, medicine it's, itself. It, it's going to depend on how you construe it. Um but there are some things, if you're making major changes in the human genome, which affects people on a fundamental level, you're, you're, you're exercising a greater degree of agency over the person than if you just heal their, their flu. Mm-hmm. And it thus would constitute playing God in a greater sense. Well, and the, the issue with Bashir is very different than with, with Una. You know, she was, in, in the case of this trial, because she was found not guilty because she was seeking asylum and was granted. Yeah. You know, versus Bashir, who he was mentally disabled and then had the genetic ma- manipulation. And, but he never had any kind of, of, uh, uh, bullying about it. And it was never, you know, persecuted over it. It was hidden well enough because they, you know, they moved and things like that so that, there was there wasn't a connection between who he was before and who he was after things like that, where it was a very different circumstance mm. with Bashir. And that's why I don't I don't think there is, you know, they, they changed anything re- with regards to that situation with this episode at all, because it, it was different set of laws, different set of rules, different set of circumstances. They point out that the Illyrians for them, genetic modification is a cultural slash custom. religious custom. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah. not, which that's one issue I kind of have with the whole idea with the Illyrians, how you've got this race of people who it is something that's it's more than a, more than just something they're doing to play God. It's a custom. It's a religion. It's something they do as part of their their devotion, really. I mean, yeah. they, they phrase it in that like of rites, rituals. Yeah. Um, and All then they expect them to just drop that to join the Federation, even though they really don't. Yeah. Yeah. I also and here I think the science is a little shaky. It's understandable if you have like cultural and religious rituals for body modification, you know, like circumcision, for example. But that's because the reason you have to do the ritual for every new generation is because circumcision is not inherited. It doesn't affect you on the genetic level. So you got to you got to do a bris for every new generation. Um, but if you're altering people on the genetic level, why isn't it passed down? Well, they, you know, they talk it, about that, actually. Because uh, Lawn, there was a question to Lawn about, do you have the, the manipulations of your ancestor? And she said, yes. I know. It wasn't on it, the trial, I don't think. It was... Yeah. I think it was Pike talking to her or something. Yeah. Yeah. But if if unless they have a some kind of obsessive fetish with tricking them out themselves out genetically more and more with every passing generation, if if you wanted to do the genetic equivalent, let's say they had a they wanted circumcision and they did it on the genetic level. Well, okay, then it should be passed down to the next generation on the genetic level. You don't need to do the circumcision ritual or the genetic modification again. It's just going to be passed down through the through the family line. So I don't know why, I don't know what rationale. I find it an interesting concept mm. that they would have genetic modification as a cultural religious ritual, but I don't know what the basis for it would be. 
maybe it just has to be some genetic modification, not right. the same. Mm-hmm. Which, which would be kind of weird, but I mean, the whole idea of genetic modification as a cultural and religious expression is kind of odd to begin with. It's a little mm-hmm. bit hard for me to grasp. So, you know, I, I, I yeah, but I, 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 I see your point. It is kind of weird. So, um, I did like the scene where Pike went to the Illyrian planet, which is inhospitable mm-hmm. to non-modified human life. And mm-hmm. he will not leave until uh, he, to the, to the point of where he's about to be sent to the hospital for, for uh, breathing the out of oxygen. Yeah. And so uh, that's how he gets his way into the office. And he has this conversation with Nira who, you know, we learn now that she's an ex friend of Una and we find out later why, um, and Pike is sort of defending the the Federation only in the sense of like, look, you know, old fears can be hard to lose. But, you know, the Federation was wrong about Illyrians. And she she has a great line. Says, Congratulations. You've discovered empathy. Let me know when the rest of the Federation catches up. Which mm-hmm. I thought was a which was a good line uh, because we expect Pike to be the good guy. And to of course, he's not going to have these old prejudices and fears. But um it's interesting to see to see that this is not the Federation perhaps we're used to seeing, at least in TNG. TOS, the Federation could some when when we finally had a Federation, could sometimes be a little mm. but in TNG, the Federation was enlightened and it's the Picard would often talk about the perfected society and we've left all of our human failings behind. Mm. That's in Strange New Worlds, that is not the Federation yeah. we see. And not in DS9 either, to be clear. But in TNG, you also have the drumhead where you do see a trial episode where there is a person who is failing, who's dealing with prejudices and ready to basically overthrow the entire crew of the Enterprise because of them. Right. I liked the drumhead. That was another courtroom. episode. I mean, it actually that is one of the better trial episodes. Don't get me wrong, but it also shows it also shows the TNG was willing to say that the Federation isn't perfect, even as they're supposedly a cashless society. They got better after the less Gene Roddenberry had to do with the next gen. <laughs> That's yeah. true. Uh, Gene Roddenberry was a was a huge proponent of the idea of perfected humanity in the time of TNG. That was his yeah his push. I wanted to mention a couple of things I really liked that involved Mister Spock in mm, this episode. Yeah. So the first one is he's having a meeting in like a mess hall on the star base with the Vulcan prosecutor, whose name is Pasalk. And from an outside person, and Laon and, uh, not Laon, uh, Ortegas and Mbenga are watching them from a distance. And Ortegas is, has this comedy narration she's doing for Mbenga's benefit about how exquisitely polite and everything is and, and between Spock and the other Vulcan and Mbenga, who in TOS was established as having special knowledge of Vulcans. Mm-hmm. I forget. It's like he interned on a Vulcan ship or something like that. Yeah, or was on um, Vulcan, I think. Yeah, was on Vulcan. Yeah. So he's got special insight into Vulcan culture. And he, he says, actually, to any knowledgeable person, it's clear that those two Vulcans hate each other. And yeah, and from from the outside, there's a little bit of stiffness between them, but there's a little bit of stiffness between Vulcans anyway. Yeah, Yeah. and they're not like hanging around drinking blood wine and bellowing. So, um, (laughs) so uh, eventually, Mister Spock gets up and walks away from the table, and outwardly, there's nothing unusual about it. But he walks over to Ortegas and Mbenga and says. 
I'm sorry you had to witness that outburst. That man brings out the worst in me. <laughs> I love that. that was so good. That was funny. I, I did laugh out loud. Yeah, Later, they have a sequence in the trial where they've introduced three character witnesses who are um, Mbanga, Spock, and Laan. Uh, and they're intercutting between them. You know, they're showing mm-hmm. us the mm-hmm. responses each one makes to certain questions. And the prosecutor is trying to establish that that um, number one was throw was throwing off signals and had been hiding her her Illyrian status. And so one of the questions is, did you did you get the sense that that she was hiding anything? And Laan, being the loyal friend and and with number one as her mentor says no didn't get the sense she was hiding anything and Benga says the same thing spock says yes i did get the sense she was hiding something and the <laughs> audience is going oh no his vulcan honesty he's going to tell the truth yeah. about her suspecting she was an illyrian and instead when he's asked what did you get a sense she was hiding he says a fondness for gilbert and sullivan operas <laughs> I thought of you. That's, <laughs> I said that. that's a callback to to the short track of Spock's first yep. day, yeah. which they also alluded to earlier. They said, "When did you first meet her?" And it's like my first day on the Enterprise. Yeah, and it's a little fifteen-minute short track. <laughs> I believe it's called Questions, where Q and A, where where number one is first officer expects Mr. Spock to ask her questions and he starts asking her all kinds of questions. The two of them get stuck in an elevator and she, they, they reveal their freakiness to each other. Um, (laughs) He's freaky as a Vulcan in that he's not totally emotionally restrained. And she tells him, you need to hide that if you're going to get promoted. And she reveals her freakiness to him and she sings, I am the very modern of a modern model of a modern major general and goes on and does the whole song. And (laughs) and so. So, yeah, that was a great callback. Um, (laughs) And I really enjoyed that. Yeah, I knew you would. (laughs) I thought you would when when he said that because I know you like Gilbert and Sullivan. Oh, Um, yes. I can sing the whole song, but for your sake, I won't. (laughs) (laughs) You have on a previous. Something we've recorded together. Hmm. Um, so one thing, uh, a, a bit of a thing that bugged me was uh, the prosecutor, Captain Patel, who was Admiral. No, no, Captain oh, Patel, Patel. Sorry, Patel. Yeah, Pike's girlfriend. Pike's girlfriend. Captain of the Cayuga, who and somehow who works so. The, she looks so different than she did when they introduced her in in episode one of season one. Which was probably I wouldn't a long think time she's the same the person. <laughs> yeah, but. But she also works in the Judge Advocate General's office. Like that's not how it works. She must have got transferred off the ship to, but they didn't say that. Just all of a sudden, now she's yeah. Jag. It, it was weird. I mean, it's well, not a huge do, point, but it's weird. They, they do have a a thing about you need certain highly ranked officers to do a trial. She always could have been dragooned into this. I mean, they're uh, it's Starfleet headquarters. I'm sure there are <laughs> there are captains laying around yeah, in, yeah. in lounges and closets and stuff you know, that they get yeah. all over the place. But yeah, it's kind of it was I just felt it was like a they wanted to have Pike's girlfriend be the prosecutor. Yeah. And that's just what they 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 chose to yeah, do. Yeah, that is a um, characteristic. Of these episodes, uh, you know, where they want to pull personal people in. So Riker gets to be the prosecutor of data and Captain Kirk's old girlfriend gets to be the prosecutor against him. And 
That's yeah. actually well, something I want to point out is how so much of the structure and even design, production design of this episode was pulled right from that TOS episode court martial. This, mm-hmm. you know, the the familiarity of the prosecutor to the participants in the trial and all this other stuff. And right down to the little light thing, the lie detector light thing, which they don't mm-hmm. point out is yeah. they expect you to figure it out to remember it. In, instead of instead of pointing out that this is a lie detector they put their hand on. They just say, may I remind you, you're under oath. And they say it about a bazillion times. <laughs> yes. You don't have to remind me. I remember. Um, the, the, also another like weird legal thing. Battelle keeps objecting as April is being questioned. Battelle keeps objecting, but the judges say nothing. They're supposed to either uphold the objection or overrule the objection. And until at the end, the the chief judge reminds Nero that April's not the one on trial and excuses him and expunges that testimony from the, the from the record. But it's like, no, no. In a trial, when a when a when a lawyer objects, the judge has a job to do and should be doing it. There's also irregularities like so. Some things I can cut him slack for, like at the very end, after the closing statement by uh, the Illyrian lawyer, the the chief judge who's the human, stands up and gives the sentence and, or gives, gives the verdict. And it's like, okay, in real life, the prosecutor would have gotten a counter rebuttal, mm-hmm. you know, as summing up. And then the judges would have deliberated, assuming there's no jury. The judges would have deliberated in private. And then they would have come back out and the chief would have announced the ruling. Um, But that's just a timing issue. I can infer that all that happened off screen. They just didn't show it to us for time reasons. Um, But earlier, so you've got three judges on this panel. There's a Vulcan judge, a human judge, who's the chief one, and a Tellarite judge. Um, the Tellarite's name is Mr. I have no lines in this episode. <laughs> no, he has and a line. He does. One line. He has one line. Okay. <laughs> um, but there is a sequence. So after Nira Katul has roasted uh, Commodore April, um, the, 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 the Vulcan judge objects to what's just happened. And strikes all of Captain April's uh, Commodore April's testimony from the record. And I'm going, you just did that without consulting either of your colleagues on the bench. (laughs) This is not how judges operate in the real world. One judge doesn't get to just unilaterally strike testimony. Uh, You need agreement among the judges before you can exclude testimony like that. Yeah. Yeah. One thing to kind of mention, though, we should be clear about is this this is more of a court martial setup than this is a standard uh, civil Mm -hmm. judge, a civil uh, court. So there are different rules, the way things are done. Now, I I can't speak for the other two, but I'm not an expert on court martial versus civil civil uh, court. But uh, it is going to be different. There are going to be different circumstances. There are going to be different rules for a court martial. That's why one thing they would tell us in the military is if you do need to go before a court martial, don't just go to a civilian lawyer. You need to go mm-hmm. to a lawyer who is yeah who is trained in court martial procedure. Yeah, you know, uh, and that's that's why you know the military would make sure that those are available uh, to work for you. And then and it was a good point. I like that where at the beginning, um, her first lawyer. She basically says, well, how can I get a fair trial when you work for her? And she's trying to just sweep this under the rug. Right. You know, basically, 
you know, so and she points th- th- out, so there are different there yeah. are different rules. That's why there are three judges instead of just one. Yeah. There's not a jury, stuff like that. So I liked how Una pointed out uh, maybe we should have done this in a sidebar instead of having yeah. like, you yeah. tell this right in front of her. Yeah, it would yeah. it would to emphasize how much Starfleet is trying to sweep this under the rug. And uh, so, yeah. so I mean, there's just that's, that's, there's gonna be lots of little differences. And yeah. the other uh, the part of the reason this episode shows why I don't like trial episodes, whether it's a court martial or a civilian trial. If you've ever actually watched trials, they're not that exciting. They're pretty they're even the most <laughs> high energy. Yeah, you know, I watched some of them on YouTube, and it's just like they're not that exciting. Nope. Yeah, the commentary is more exciting than the trial, and they're basic, and they're also generally very badly. They're generally very bad sound wise. Yeah. Not everybody in a courtroom is wearing a microphone, so it's going to be hard to hear what's going yeah. on. So I want to revisit the on looking through the personal logs thing for a second, because I just make a, another point, which mm-hmm. is um, so she orders Uhura to troll the crew's personal logs for evidence to find it illegal to, to find the tainted evidence. She's issuing an illegal order to reveal tainted evidence, which would itself become tainted evidence, which. I would love to see that legal precedent uh, be dealt with <laughs> when that gets revealed, because that would set quite a precedent. Uh, so I thought it was well, interesting, and- but I thought it was dumb if I just finished the thought, because if if Laon thinks that it was her personal log that got accessed to reveal uh, the that uh, that uh, Una is Illyrian, why doesn't she just go look at the access code, you yeah. know, access logs for that? Yeah. Well, yeah. I think she wanted to make sure it wasn't just her. Uh, but I, again, yeah. I, I like I like a her there that's saying, don't do this. You're going to you're yeah. going to make things worse. I'm not going to help you with this. You know, and that is, you know, the illegal orders, you know, members of the military are not obligated to follow. Yes. If there's something like that where that's clearly illegal, the military member might take a ding. I mean, Ahura got off pretty easily with mm-hmm. law and not, you know, pushing it. But yeah, yeah, it, it's that's that's how it should have been handled. It's like, no, don't do this. That you're 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 not going to make the case you think you're going to make. Right, you're going to make things worse. One thing that that could have been in Laon's mind is if whoever if someone did access her log and was really good at covering their tracks, there might not be an audit trail that would show who it was. But it but that person might have mentioned it in their own log. Yeah, and that so that might be thinking. why she would want to listen listen to these other logs. So another good, I thought was a a, a close in a loophole that might have been brought up is the whole um, Nira's questioning about captains and the prime directive and how mm-hmm. even though it's the prime directive, general order number one, they seem to apparently have some leeway in enforcing that, which yeah. I thought was at least a good thing yeah. to bring up. And I like that she points out laws only apply when a captain deems that they do. And <laughs> yeah. that these are flimsy and subjective laws. And you've broken, you, Commodore April, have broken their highest law multiple times and you're a decorated hero. Yeah. And that's, and, and in fact, I think uh, Una is like, was mad at her for throwing April under the bus like that. And, mm-hmm. um, and I think that's which the was, point. Which was yeah. nice. It, yeah. It, yeah. I think that's the point at which we really get it shown to us that at this point, Nira is less concerned with getting Una found not guilty than with confronting the Federation's racism. That's mm-hmm. really what her, her aim is here. And that's or geneticism. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's when Una's own testimony and story kind of brings things back to personal, uh, because as she reveals um, that um, what she did to alienate Una, I mean, uh, Nira was by leaving behind her 
you know, who she really was and, you know, reveals the the price that she was paying uh, for, for being mm-hmm. Illyrian. Yeah. For people who haven't seen it, when they divide the Illyrian society into a, a ghetto and a non-ghetto, Una's family moves to the non-ghetto and Nira's family is left back in the ghetto. And right. that's what ended their friendship. Right. Even though Una's family's, it was Una's parents who were making the decision, but that <laughs> yeah. might not stop Nira from resenting her. Mm. So the title of the episode is comes up at this point where she you know talks about ad astra per aspera, which is the mm-hmm. you know to the stars through adversity or difficulty or this various ways you can translate it. And Una says she thought that it it also meant that in the vastness of space we wouldn't just satisfy our curiosity, but might also find salvation. And I thought that was a kind of an odd thing i mean it, it, it it's kind of tr- very trekish to kind of say you know mm-hmm. going just the very act of going to space together is what will save humanity which is almost kind of an elon musk let's go settle mars thing mm-hmm. as well um mm-hmm. you know salvation doesn't come from you know going to the stars <laughs> in that sense it's, i mean in, in, in one sense it, it comes from from it's a temporal God. salvation they're referring yeah. to though yeah it's true it's true uh, but it sets it up as, you know, like going to the stars is Star Trek has often done this. In fact, it's really in the name is the trek to the stars is that our common reaching out, reaching forth, which was comes out of the space race of the 60s, rises us all beyond the horizons of our own planet and our planet's troubles to work together as humanity in the face of whatever else is out there. And I, I think that is a, a pretty decent um, message. To, to put out there um, for you know, with this ad aspera per, I mean, ad astra per aspera. So I thought it was uh, interesting. Um, the Vulcan prosecutor, Pasalk, says, you know, he, he dismisses so much of the testimony saying it's all emotion and emotion is irrelevant in the face of facts. And I, I, I thought to myself, that may be true for Vulcans, but that's not necessarily true for other cultures. And Vulcans aren't mm-hmm. the only culture here. No, but uh, Vulcans are very preachy about their logic. <laughs> yeah. Right. We've established in Enterprise how uh, kind of arrogant they are about emotion and logic. Uh, so I thought that was kind of a weird thing. Um, any other things that you want to bring up? Uh, any other notes on this episode, Father Corey? Nothing here. How about you, Jimmy? I like that the meaningless decorations on their uh, dress uniforms are inspired by the little triangular pens from the original series. Yes. Yes. They're very clearly. Uh, connection between those dress uniforms and the, the yeah that's I, I really like how the effort they're going to to in strange new worlds to walk back a lot of the stuff that they did in discovery mm-hmm. to bring it back to be at least be connected least, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the design of the bridge of the enterprise the uniforms all that sort of stuff it, it feels like star trek again all right um and do you have anything jimmy any more to add nope okay uh, so let's get to our feedback from last time, which uh, first feedback. Uh, this is from our discussion on the premiere episode, Broken Circle. And Eric, one of our patrons, writes, So I think Carol Kane's accent on Strange New Worlds is straight out of the TV show Taxi, where she played mm-hmm. Andy Kaufman's Latka's wife. That's the accent, not the Princess Bride, which brings up an interesting idea. Is the Star Trek universe set in the same universe as the TV show Taxi? Her character is essentially immortal, (laughs) and she said she was on Earth for many years. Maybe the chief engineer of the Enterprise was once married to the chief mechanic in a New York taxi cab company. Maybe that's why she has developed a love of mechanics and engineering. 
<laughs> Interesting insight. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> that is now headcanon for me. Uh, she is. Yeah. Uh, well, what was the character's name? I forget. But yeah. Yeah. So uh, we should also point out that Taxi has another connection to Star Trek. Christopher Lloyd. Yes, it is. Was yep. one of the, the cabbie. He was kind of the, the drugged out. Jim, Reverend, Reverend Jim. Jim, Reverend Jim, <laughs> Reverend Jim, yeah. and uh, of course he was the Klingon in Star Trek Three. Yes, yes, he was. Oh man, I wonder if there are other taxi actors who ended up in Star Trek uh, roles. It'd be interesting to find out. Some did go on to sci-fi. Um, Jeff Conaway, who was one of the taxi cab drivers, later became Zach Allen on Babylon Five. That's right. That's right. That's right. Yep. Yep. I've been watching Babylon Five and enjoying it. My right first here. time through. Oh really? Yes. Yes. Oh, um, what season are you in? First season, halfway through the first season. Okay. And it's the rare series mm-hmm. that is good right out of the gate. Like, yeah, it's yeah. so good. And it gets much, it gets much better from there. Yes, it does. Yeah. Yeah. It's that's kind of about the where I am for my second watch through. Yes. Last mm-hmm. time I watched through, you still could get DVDs from Netflix. <laughs> and that's how I watched it the first time. Yep. Uh, <laughs> so our next feedback comes from Paul Leone, who uh, wrote on YouTube. I loved this episode. The combat serum sequence was kind of weak, not the greatest fight choreography, but other than that, A-plus, can't wait for the trial episode. I hope it lived up to your expectations, Paul. (laughs) And then from back in our uh, episode 259, when Father Corey and I discussed Discovery Season 4, our friend Mm. Bennett Gillespie writes on uh, Facebook, I rewatched the series and realized that the story progress stopped just before the denouement so the captain can have a cuddle with the first officer. <laughs> wow. Well, Bennett, that about sums up Discovery Season 4. Yeah. <laughs> We're in the middle of this epic battle. You know, our lives are on the line. Let's spend 10 minutes talking about our feelings <laughs> and how we're together in our togetherness. Yes, yes, that's Discovery. We're discovering a lot. Well, thank you all for your feedback. We really do appreciate it. Uh, let's take a moment now to thank our patrons, make it possible for us to create the secrets of Star Trek, including Todd H., Rosemary P., Bob M., Matthew P., and Paul B. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue the secrets of Star Trek and all the shows at StarQuest. And you can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. So that's it from us this time. What did you think of Ad Astra Per Aspera? Let us know by commenting on the show at sqpn.com slash trek, our Facebook page, facebook.com slash StarQuest Media, or send an email to trek at sqpn.com or visit our Discord community at sqpn.com slash discord. You can watch The Secrets of Star Trek on our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash StarQuest Media, where you should make sure to leave us a comment, but also subscribe and hit the bell to get notifications. We'll be back next time when we'll be discussing the next new episode of Strange New Worlds titled Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow. Until then, Father Cory Stika, thank you for joining me and sharing the secrets of Star Trek. Thank you, Don. Jimmy Aiken, thank you as well. Thank you, thank you, thank you for your three tomorrows and live long and prosper. <laughs> and once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to the secrets of Star Trek on StarQuest. And remember, you're not born a monster. You were just born with a capacity for actions, good or ill, just like the rest of us. (laughs) 